Welcome to the Comics Misremembered Podcast with your hosts Jim and John, and here's the opening music. Everybody and welcome to a rousing rendition of Comics Misremembered, the comic podcast where we talk about comics and comic-related items. I'm one of your hosts, Jim, and I'm John. And uh, to, this week we're going to be talking about a comic, um, one that I've been waiting for a while to talk about, and I'm glad that we're getting around to it. Um, it's it's an older comic, and it's one that I read back in the day. Yes. John did too. Um, we de- recently did a reread of the book. Um, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be getting parts of it, even though I just read it a few days ago. Yeah, it's a little crunchy. It's 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 got a lot of information yes. in it. So what are we talking about? Uh, well, we're talking about a comic called V for Vendetta. You may be familiar with it. They turned it into a movie. It was originally written by Alan Moore, and the artwork was by David Lloyd. Now, before we get into talking about more about V for Vendetta, um, oh, we'll, we'll be talking about that intro music. And uh, so if you're not familiar with the podcast, we play a little game here. I select a piece of music that I think accompanies the subject matter that we'll be discussing. John has a wealth of knowledge about music, history, and and pop songs and all that stuff. And he likes to take a guess at what that intro music is. He did not hear the music prior to me uh, putting it on here. But he might have heard it sometimes in his past. So, John, do you have a guess? Never mind the bollocks. That's the Sex Pistols. And that is Anarchy in the UK. Correct. And he even, you know, named the album that it was off of. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yes, the Sex Pistols, Anarchy in the UK, off the album, Never Mind the Bullocks. And, um, you know, it's appropriate um, for, for the subject matter. Absolutely. Because we'll be talking about anarchy and what does that mean um, in this comic book. And um, I've been waiting a long time to play that music you know what i had to do i had to double check we did you know we've this is uh podcast 258 we've done over 250 podcasts where we select pieces of music and i said i swear i thought i used that on somewhere else so i double checked Ah. and i didn't uh use it anywhere as far as i could find if uh if somebody because what we like to do here in uh, comics misremembered is not use the same intro music jim goes out of his way to pick a new piece of music every week to kind of set the tone for the for the podcast as we go for as we're going forward, yep, and uh, has done an, an admirable job of making sure that we don't repeat himself and, or repeat ourselves. Yes, <laughs> he doesn't repeat himself, or and we don't repeat ourselves. Right there, we so go. so I had I have been saving that for a long time, and I'm glad I'm finally able to get to use it. Uh, John and I have been talking about the 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 format of which we're going to be recording the podcast, and we figure it's going to be a two parter. This yes. is going to be the first part you're listening to tonight, and the second part. So we're going to start talking about the history of how this comic was made, and then talk about the actual story itself. So spoilers if you've never read it. We're going to be getting into subject matter of the comic. And then the second part is we're going to continue with the subject matter of the comic. I'm sure we're not going to cover it all in just one podcast. And what we're going to do, too, is we're going to rewatch that V for Vendetta movie that came out in early 2000s and, and do a comparison. Like, how much has it changed? What did they do different? Do you still like it? Yeah, Don't you has, like it? That has, kind of how did it stand up over time? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so we're going to be getting. So we're going to, we're going to talk about the history of this comic first. Um, let's talk about when it's when it was originally. Released. So it was originally. Um, oh, actually, I want to talk about the colorist too. So there's three um, colorists on here. 
One is Steve Whitaker. Yep. The other one is Shaban. Shaban Dodds. Thank you, John. And David Lloyd, who's the, also the artist, he did some of the the uh, the colors too. And I'm gonna we're gonna explain why those three people are important as the artist in this. It was published by DC, um, and it was originally. Oh, and actually, so John's gonna give us yeah. like a little history about when it was published. So, initially published in 1982 by DC in black and white. As no, a, not by DC. Oh, sorry. Initially published started in 1982 in black and white as an ongoing serial in the short-lived UK anthology Warrior. It morphed into a 10-issue limited series uh, produced by DC Comics. Subsequent collected editions have been typically published under DC's more specialized imprint, Vertigo. Exactly. So let's talk about, um, before we get into in the more history of it, I want to talk about the version that we read. Yes. So I want to, I picked this up a while ago, and you can tell it was a while ago. How can you tell, John? Because it's got the DC bullet. Right. It's got the DC bullet as the logo for DC. Doesn't say Vertigo on it yep. at all. And we started looking inside of it to say, like, when when do you think this was, and what what did you mark it around? My at? my guess is that this is like this is seriously like the first one of the first collected trades, uh, because the the imprint that we the um the forward to this is is was nineteen ninety two, um, and this is the and I believe that this is actually the first pr this is probably like one of the first printings of of the uh, of the graphic novel itself. Yeah. I, I, it may be, maybe first or second. I, I, I'll have to look so into actually, it a little bit more. This is actually copyright 1990 for DC, <laughs> and I believe, and I 1990. So I believe this is actually probably like, like I said, between 90 and 92. Yeah. Again, back in the day, they didn't put out uh, graphic novels uh, as soon as the individual issues ended. Yes. Like uh, now, like uh, a 12 issue series, they'll probably put out. Uh, a collected version of the six issues of it. I was going to say, twelve. If it's twelve issue series, you're getting two, and you're getting the first six, and the and usually the it, it, usually the the uh, trade will come out on issue seven or eight at right. the latest. So, but they didn't do that back back in uh, in, the, in the early eighties. What they did is they would um, publish the work, and then maybe if it's super popular, they'd collect it in a trade format, and that was probably years after it was published. Uh, and so, I'm going to share a little story about how I came to read it the first time around. Um, I've shared the story before in other podcasts, uh, one time other, and what had happened was in the late 80s, I was working a job, and I hated the job that I was working at. It was a lot of manual labor, and I, it was like uh, pushing a broom and such, and I'm like, forget this. It was janitorial, we'll say. I said, forget this. I'm not working this place anymore, and I just left, and I didn't even tell the guy. I, didn't want, I was like my, a teenager. I was like 16. I didn't even tell the guy I was leaving. I just left and never came back and never said anything. Then I got another job and another company, and I stayed with that company a long time. And so there was a couple of years where I didn't have any job as a teenager. And as a teenager, I was also collecting comics. So at that time, when I lost my well, I left my job, I didn't lose it. I left it. Yeah, you left it. You, you lost it behind you. Yeah, I lost it behind <laughs> me. I, I was like, I had no money to buy comics, so I had to give up collecting comics altogether because I had nothing. And um, so, you know, time goes on. Um, I remember I was buying like a present for my nephew, who was very young at the time. And I was like, again, this is like a probably 17, maybe 18. And I was at a Toys R Us and there was a three pack of comics. I was buying a toy and in the, the aisle, they sold those three pack of comics like yep. Impulse Buy. It had G.I. Joe and I love G.I. Joe as a kid. A comic, that is. And uh, so I said, oh, I'm going to buy the comic. And I read those and I got hooked again. And I had a job. And I was like, I'm going to stop buying comics. 
So I'm buying stuff. I'm trying to collect back issues. Again, it's it's hard. This is the the 80s. There were specialty shops, but you couldn't get everything you wanted. And I'm reading like Comic Scene and Wizard Magazine. Well, Wizard actually wasn't around yet, but Comic Scene was. Yeah. And um, and Comics Journal. And so I'm reading those, and they're telling me about like things that I missed. And Alan Moore was super big at this point because um, this is the late 80s when I started getting into it again. So Alan Moore already put out Watchmen. He already put out V for Vendetta. He already put out his, his Swampman work. So he's, he's pretty much been with DC, in The Killing Joke, he's been with DC and he left DC at the point I started reading his stuff, right? But I all the stuff I'm reading, I, I like. I read The Killing Joke. I was actually got that when it came out. And, uh, and I was like, oh, you know, I want to get some of his older stuff. I wonder if I can. So again... In comic stores, they didn't sell trades. They just sold individual yeah. issues. If you wanted to get a trade and you couldn't go to Amazon, there was no internet back in the 80s, the late 80s. If you wanted to get a trade, something you had to go to like a specialty shop or a bookstore. Right. Luckily, uh, Bar- Barnes & Noble got on the kind of like trade train. Yes, absolutely. And they started selling the trade. So I went to the local Barnes & Noble and I picked up three things. I picked up Watchmen. I picked up Return The Dark Knight Returns because I didn't read that either and yeah. I didn't get that. And I picked up V for Vendetta. And I read all of them, you know, over the course of a week and I loved all of them. And uh, I was like a fantastic read. And I knew I was going to want to talk about this comic eventually. So that was my exposure to V for Vendetta. How about yourself, John? Um, v for Vendetta was one of those things that kind of got involved, kind of got, was sort of in the atmosphere around me. Um, I remember that there were a lot of, a lot of my friends and people who were in my social circle. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, of course now we're talking about at this point, you know, the early nineties. So I was, I was just, you know, so this, we're a lot of college kids, um, or, you know, just post immediately post college. Yeah. So for me, I ran into this as a I ran into, into this as a uh, graphic novel later, um, as a suggestion because I got into um, into Watchmen first. Yeah. And then when I read Watchmen, I was like, Oh my God, I have to I have to pick up the, a copy of this. And and I didn't even bother because there because at this point it had become you know sort of a seminal enough work that. There was a trade available for it, and I would. So I, I don't know whether, um, I think it was, I, I think it was, um, it might have been Borders or or Barnes and Noble. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of bookstores were carrying. It was them. one of the. I yeah. went to a bookstore and picked it up. Because, of course, at that point, because um, I was sort of, I was sort of in, I sort of was in my between comics phase, um, where I kind of had gotten, you know, where I had gotten into it as a kid, and then when you start working. You you know it's like you hit you know you get you hit that that period of time where you kind of like you'd like to be able to continue with some of your hobbies, and unfortunately economic decisions are predicate that that may not be so possible. Yeah, um, such a possibility. And that, I was at that point. So after I remember actually I, I think the first time I didn't I read it before I I, I read it before I got it, um, and it was actually Luke my friend Luke Crane mm-hmm. um, who who had it. Um, he was also, you know, because he's a, he was a huge, he's a huge Alan Moore fan. Right. Um, so, and he's, that was one of the comics that he had decided to keep with him. So, and then I picked up my own copy later and reread it. And I think that's when I, I don't think the first time I picked up, it, it's interesting because every time I've engaged the media, I've, 
I've gotten every time I've engaged the media, I've gotten different things out of it. I don't think it really resonated the first time. I think it was kind of like because I had a hard time with the art. Um, oh, we'll talk v- about Viva Vendetta. Yeah, we'll talk okay. about that. We'll talk about that when we talk about the art. Yeah. Um, and I think um, I think the second time I kind of got I, I was in a much, I was in a better place with it. So okay. So, so we, we we pretty much had the same experience with it, where we reread it as a trade yeah. in one sitting, which I wouldn't probably encourage. I mean, the only way they're going to get it nowadays is you're going to get it in a trade, but which is the best way to read. Oh it. yeah, because it's like you will once you start getting into it and you start flipping the pages, um, you really like it, it's almost like you can't put it down. It's like it is page turn. Oh yeah, um, and we're, we're going to talk about why why that is in, in a moment. So. Again, this movie, this movie, this comic book came out in um, originally in '82 in a, a, a book that John mentioned was Warrior Magazine. Now, Warrior Magazine comic uh, was different. English, we we talked about this before too. Yeah, English comics were different than American comics because essentially all English comics, um, for the most part, were anthology comics, meaning they had multiple stories in it. Um, especially Warrior, who was like a a, a new, brand new comic uh, company brand new comic magazine, they want to try to get as many readers as possible. And if you go with one character, you may not get a whole bunch of readers because everybody likes different tastes. But if I have three or four different stories in one comic, I might hook a dozen different readers because they're all reading it for different reasons. And I read a little article on it about like the editor who made Warrior Magazine who said, you know, he didn't expect... V for Vendetta to have a popularity it was. He said, "Is is is if I if I gave that comic book its own comic, it probably would sell nothing. Right, like nobody would be interested in it. And then, uh, but if I give it a four page stretch, people might buy some for something else, like Judge Dread. Yeah, and then you know, Judge Dread's not in this, but I'm just using an example. Um, but people might buy it for that, and then but read this because it's in the same comic and may get hooked on it because of that. And but the funny thing is, it wasn't very popular because." The the comic is is um, multiple pages, but it's broken down into three books, and the first two books got published through Warrior Magazine, but then it stopped. And I think it's it, I don't know if it's because they didn't had lost interest or Warrior just folded. I I can't remember how that that story ends, but they they could only publish the first two books. DC of course loves Alan Moore's other stuff, Swamp Swamp Thing, um, Watchmen. What else you got? What yeah. else can we pull out? What can we make money on? Yeah. So they, they got this. They already saw the um, the first two books. So they created the last book, and they um, set it out as a 10-issue limited series. And they and, uh, sent it out, and then, of course, subsequently it gets collected in a trade. Now, uh, originally it was published black and white, because, again, expensive color comics yep. um, are. So black, black and white through a Warrior magazine. And the thing – now, we're going to talk about the art a little bit. Um, so David Lloyd, I like David Lloyd's art. You know, we're going to yeah. hear your your side of the story in a second. And what David Lloyd does, because it is black and white, he takes advantage of negative space on pages. And what do I mean by that? So instead of normally when you read a comic, everything's very defined. You get the outline of the figures, the outline of the the, the background. You, everything's in place and defined. But with negative spacing, because you're just using black and white, what you do is you allow the background to defi- define the foreground image. So if I draw a, a figure in the, in the center of the image that's going to be the focus of that panel, instead of drawing the figure, I'm going to let the, the background define what that figure is. 
So there's no solid borders around it. It's just whatever, like there could be a computer system in the background. And then there's a white space in the middle that has a face on it. And that's your figure. I let the background define the figure. And now if, I, if you did that in color, it's not going to work. That's why you never really see a lot of negative spacing using color comics. Yes. The, the other best example I can give you that you um, probably are very familiar with is the Sin City comics. I was just going to say, yeah. Sin City is just all black and white, negative spacing. You see a lot of whites where there should be darks and vice versa. And the reason why you do this, it looks, it, it's bold and it catches your eye. Not so, that, that, that's an extreme version, Sin City. Not so much his work. It's very subtle. And, um, but DC has to color it. Right. So we're going to talk about that because they can't release a black and white comic. Now, you said you had an issue with the art. Why don't we get I, into that? I don't think I had any. I think it when I was, when I first got into comics, I admitted that I, I come from, like, I had certain ideas about what comics should be. Yep. Because as a kid, my exposure to comics wasn't what most people's comics were. Mm-hmm. I read, um, I read Pogo. Um, the yep, we discussed well, that before. The, yep. the, the collected Walt Kelly. I was a huge fan of Tintin, Asterisk and Obelix, uh, Lucky Luke. So I had like this whole. That's like more. So if you were going to define that genre, that's more kind of kid humor. Uh, yeah, related. I mean, it had some serious. No, I mean, and I mean that as kid comma yeah. humor because it's youthful and it has a very humorous twist to it. Exactly, and it it doesn't necessarily care. It doesn't care necessarily. It's a you know, it's a lot of you know. Daring adventures and you know young young adult right and it's yeah it's YA except yeah. for um, Pogo was political comic yeah but it, but so, it, but it still it was catered towards a yeah, youthful audience yes and um, so and that, so my experience like I said my experience with comics wasn't like the normal you know like DC Marvel yeah Spider Man Batman it, it wasn't that right. so I came in from it from that and I, I guess maybe it was because I had I was used to um, a certain that that art style. That when I first, and then I got into the the actual comic, um, the actual comic style back, you know, when you know start when I started reading comics on my own, you know, got into like some some Doctor Strange, like X Men, that sort of thing. Right. And then I was expecting more like the Marvel DC DC look. And so here's this throwback, and I don't know, and I quite, and I can't quite process it. And I know that in the back of my head, I know that something's wrong with it, and it's because it's colorized. My brain wanted to decolorize it the first time I read it. Okay. So I had a really hard time with it. Like I was like, I like you know, like in terms of like my first interaction with the medium. Yeah. Like I said, with this book was not necessarily that wasn't was like I know it, it was a great story. I had a problem with the art the second time when I got it. Well, the second time that I picked it up, which was about a year or two afterwards, I had an entirely different experience with it because my brain had because I because my brain had changed. It, it knew it was more willing to like be. Ex- be flexible in terms of what I was. I think a lot of it is also my maturity level mm-hmm. in terms of like my ability to understand art better. Yeah. Um, having an appreciation for things that I didn't see. And I think that's interesting because you mentioned uh, Frank Miller and Sin City and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which came years later. Which came out years later. Yeah. And I think rereading it um, when I, you know, recently, you know, just like I said, over the last week um, kind of reminded me how much that style is is excellent and I and I kind of miss it and I you know and and so like I said it's sort of an the sort of my view on the art is an evolution as I became more as I became more I don't want to say sophisticated because it's a kind of cheesy word but as I became more maybe I was able to process things in a different way and enjoy them and and like so like and it's really it's funny how something that you 
when you associate uh, an idea um, as a child, mm-hmm. it can carry on in tr- until until you have to, a subsequent event that changes it. Right, and that's what happened with that the art. So, I hope that clarifies it. Maybe. Yep. Mo- no. Mo- no. Most definitely. And um, I kind of I can agree with you, and maybe even I when I because I originally read it again like in my late teens, early twenties, um, that maybe I didn't even pick up on the the. Like, I didn't probably even know what to call it, negative spacing. Yeah. You know, I've learned that years later, going through, like, art classes and and, and things of that nature. Because it's like, I, I know what that means if somebody said it to me. And that's why I have to use examples, because maybe not everybody understands yeah. what you know what the term is. And I didn't pick up on that. But what I did pick up on it the, with the recent reread of it is the the way that they use the color. Yes. Because it's extremely muted. It's, 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 it, you, you, it's almost you don't even notice it sometimes and that's on purpose because again it, it looks strange if you were to really define the color so if i was really to color it the way that you would see a modern comic and those because it's not all negative spacing you know sometimes you use just a regular uh, panels but mo- the majority of the comics is like this negative spacing and if you were to color in the areas that were the negative space they look the f- color looks like it's floating yes and it's it's weird because there is there's a sort of um, you know um, you know the you know the artist Roy Lichtstein yeah he's a, he stole a comic book writer he stole Alex right. Toth's uh, comic art was, and sold it for billions of dollars right exactly but it's it's weird because so much it's because the the muted colors are sort of you know because it's it's I think you're I think it's interesting too because uh, this edition the edition that we read is so old um, this is so old. It's kind of even more muted than it would be normally. Well, it could be faded a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because the um, the paper is uh, is a little bit better than pa- uh, regular comic paper. It's not like Baxter but, stock or yeah, anything exactly. like that. But it, it, it's faded a little. But I I think so. I think that it's I think that that's an interesting. I think it's an interesting thing for you to say when you say that the colors sort of float. Yeah. And it's not even complete. It's not even not everything is colored in too. So your brain so it's le- letting your brain do the rest do some of the work with it too. Yeah, the best way I could describe it is if you're used to watercolors, it's like somebody watercolored it and then left it out in the sun for a year. Yeah. Cuz it's it's really faded. But again, it's on purpose because it is that fine line between putting too much and it looks strange and leaving too little and it's almost kind of it's almost black and white but not quite. And I, I like what they did. It's very subtle, the, the way that the color, and it's, it's, that's why I had to mention the colorers that were involved in it, because I think it's genius yeah. um, to do it that way. So I, li- I love the art um, that's involved. And if you were, were going to describe David Lloyd's art style, what would you, kind of, what would you compare it to? What would you, would be, what would you say? I mean, it's, it's dynamic. Yeah. Um, he's, he's very good at telling stories. He's very good at pacing and panels. Yeah, he's got an he's got a really he's got a real gift for space and and placement and and placement in, in the um, in the panels. Yep. Um, they definitely they definitely. Um, for, I I think that I I think that there's a subtlety, um, and until he decides to get and then but until in terms of like the, um, the pacing. And then when he goes to his to, to the dynamics, he you know he immediately brings the work in. So I'm trying to think of a good artist analog. Um, and well, I'm it's it, 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 he's a very good artist. He's he has um, a lot of these pictures and panels that we're looking at are mostly 
interactions between two people. Yes. There's a lot of um, dialogue in it, but Alan Moore it likes to speak He's... sometimes. And there's very few action sequences, but the dialogue is necessary because it's a totally new story, a unique story, and you're trying to understand the place where where everybody ex- exists in this place. And we'll talk about the story in a moment. Um, but it, but it, if you think of like a great artist, like Alex Toth is, you know, we just mentioned him. Yeah. Great artist, um, Buscema, uh, John Buscema. Yep. Uh, I just I saw a video on him. Great anatomy artist uh yes so uh, people like that he's able to he's able to take it uh, he's he's getting he gets a lot of emotion and uh and facial um you know in fa- facial emoting yeah um that's out of at, even using this sort of abstract and diffuse style i think that's a real gift and i, I so it's it's definitely well and that's necessary because the dialogue people's reaction to things change from panel to panel and it might be happy and then repulsed and then crying and angry and you have to capture that it's the same person being all these emotions and i think the one good thing is that they that he never puts people out of scale you know in terms of like these giant pan there's no giant panels they even like the even or you know some of these these moments that are really big are really personal. Now, here's the other funny thing, too, about the art. The main character, V, mm-hmm. has a mask the whole time. Yes. He's never out of his mask. So how do you interject uh, the emotion in a mask? Shadow. The use of shadow, the yeah. way it's positioned, the angle that he draws it. And in fact, it was David Lloyd that suggested the mask and its relevance. We'll talk about that, too, as we get into more of the history of it. And he's the one who suggested the mask. So he's the one that knew what he was going to have to go through in order to get this person to emote, to and show it, things. And it wasn't laziness. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Right. It takes it's more It's a difficulty. Work. Yeah. It, more, it takes more work to emote something that's, that's a static versus, you know, the, using the dynamism, dynamism of, the, uh, of your facial expression. Right. So David Lloyd has a, is, is, you know, he's the, a big part of co-creator of this comic. Because he's the one that's visually telling that story, and then the other side of that is Alan Moore, who's doing all the uh, the the words, you know, the talking, the talking parts, the dialogue. Now, I want to talk a little bit more. Let's let's talk a little bit about the story. Sure. So we have the synopsis here. Would you care to read it? Do you want me to read it? Oh, sure. You gonna go for yeah, it? Absolutely. So, so here's a quick synopsis of what we have for you. The story depicts a dystopian and post-apocalyptic near-future version of the UK as set in the 1990s, preceded by a nuclear war in the 80s that devastated most of the rest of the world. The white supremacist neo-fascist, outwardly Christo-fascist, sorry, and homophobic fictional Norse fire political party has exterminated its opponents in in concentration camps and now rules the, the country as a police state. Uh, this com- this comics follows the story's title character and protagonist V, an anarchist revolutionary dressed as an, in a Guy Fox mask, as he begins an elaborate theatrical revolutionist campaign to kill his former captors, bring down the fascist state, and convince the people to abandon fascism in favor of anarchy, while a young as- aspiring young woman Evie Hammond, to be his po- protege. Protege. Sorry, I exactly. totally messed that up. Well, that's yeah. okay. You got it out, and people understand it now. So if you if you're not familiar with it. You have an understanding of like what kind of subject matter you're getting into, and as you can tell, it's a comedy. Yes, absolutely. That's why I giggled. 
That's why I broke it. They're I'm very like, serious I'm matters. This copy. I'm reading yeah. this copy, and it's like, I'm like, it, it seems like a little overwrought, but it's, um, I suppose. It's overwrought? A little. It's a little, you know. Pshaw. 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 So we're going to talk about the, the elements of the story, how it comes to be. But of course, nothing, no art is created in a vacuum. Uh, there are influences, events that happen in the real oh, yeah. world that inspire it. Uh, let me give you a little bit of backstory uh, about Alan Moore and his relationship to V for Vendetta. This is from what I've read in the history of things. So originally, Alan Moore had written this uh, kind of a draft of it in 1975, a very young Alan Moore. And he did it as kind of like a writing assignment to get to get his kind of work out there. And he called it The Doll. And it was, um, you know, a totalitarian state, so very similar subject. And it was a vigilante, but not, not wearing a mask, had a white face, and it was a uh, transsexual vigilante and fighting against the, you know, the fascism of the state. So this is, he was, you know, anti-authoritarian, yeah, anti-authoritarian um, very young, Alan Moore. But then the 80s come in, and Alan Moore's getting a little bit older. And the 80s come in, and we have uh, Prime Minister uh, Margaret Thatcher, and we mentioned this before. Yep. And, 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 and nobody has done more for art. In, for English in, art. For English art in particular than Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, for the UK, I should she, say. Because, man, did she give us some of the greatest, some great art and music. So, so if you, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking of the Sex Pistol. Yeah. Uh, so if you're not familiar who, you know, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was, so Margaret she's Thatcher, passed on. Margaret Thatcher was known as the Iron Lady. Yeah. And she was sort of unique in... Uh, the, in British culture, because British culture had not... She was the first female prime minister. Right. And they had, they were definitely ahead of the curve, you know, being under monarchs for for years, the queen, you know, yeah. understanding that women... But they had their own body of legislature. But, but she was so... She got to power by being the, by being the right combination of ruthless, intelligent, and cunning. Well, um, here's the thing. It's speaking about that intelligence, because this isn't something that I didn't even know until I started kind of like really going back into her history. So growing up, she was very intelligent. She was a chemist. She was studying to be a chemist in um, her high school and in her university. And um, she decided, and then she got, she she was so smart that she got into Oxford, which is a, you know, prestigious uh, university in, in England. And so she's studying chemistry. She gets through chemistry, and then she's like, I want to be a lawyer. I want to know about law. She studies for law. She passes the bar. So now she's got, she knows about chemistry. She knows about law. She says, I want to get into politics. So this is, when at very young, she's, she gets married. She has twins. This is like the uh, late 50s, 60s. She starts getting into politics, graduating through that. And then it was, and in the, in the, um, between the, the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, she's getting these minor cabinet roles and she had one for the education. And one of the things that she was doing is she was trying to cut the budget for, because it's, you know, social education, socialized right. education. So she's trying to cut the budget for, uh, food, for, for school. And she's decided, I remember this growing up myself in America. There was a milk program. You would yep. get like a little carton of milk to drink during your lunch break or whenever they served it, but you got one carton of milk. Right. So she decided to cut how to cut some money is the the one through I think it was sixth grade didn't get milk, but the seven no got milk I'm sorry got milk but the seven through eleven grade didn't get milk or maybe even tenth grade you know it was it, yeah, it was yeah. kind of like your tweeners you know yep. your tweeners and early teens, 
And she and everybody didn't like that proposal. They think everybody should, you know, got the milk. Right. So she was known as Milk Snatching Thatcher. <laughs> milk Snatcher Thatcher. Wow. That's just little little funny little thing. Anecdotes. And then she she gets more and more involved in politics. People are starting to get aware of her. She gets to be prime minister. Now this is where she has like a reign like nobody's business. The eighties to like ladies like 88 89 she she embarked on the first wave of austerity you know which and she's sort of for the prototype for the for the um conservatives you know followed the the reaganomics mm-hmm. um the whole which was an american was, counterpart right she had thatcherism right so and her her reaganomics was reagan yep. thatcherism same once, thing once again going back to cutting taxes to stimulate growth you yep. know you know limited government the government was over was an was a Inefficient means conservatism, of, yeah, yeah mar- of to the markets, privatization and, of exactly. public. This is that was things. I was just about to nail this. So, and of course, one of the things that happens during this time is there's the lar- there's some of the largest strikes going on. Yep. Um, if you remember the uh, coal strikes, yeah, exactly because they were they're because what they were doing is they're in, they're introducing competition and and you know a lot of these things had been nationalized. Yes, jobs for life, pensions, the whole nine yards. And then that's out the and window. And now all of this is uh, people are losing their jobs, they're losing their pensions, they're, everything's just going to hell. Right. And there's and and there's you know youth unemployment skyrockets. Um, so there's this... no, well, it, it just unemployment in general. Yeah. Sky- so it, it when she became prime minister, it was already bad. Yeah. And it just got worse over kind of four years. And then there was a revote to try to say, like, oh, maybe we're going to get out. She wins the revote and stays in another, like, four years. Yeah. And then she gets it. There's another revote. And she stays. Like, people keep keeping her in. Right. Even though they hate her policies. Yeah. <laughs> even though they hate her, they well, keep voting for her. I mean, it's like, it's the same thing with, like, our policies. Like, how did, like, Bush get reelected? And she did and she did the same thing that Bush did because yeah. she went to war in the Falklands. That, so well, that, to, that, that's to, her... Iron lady stands. Yeah, she. Was, I'm not going to change. I'm going to show you how much power I have. Right. So she. Go, so it, so there's these little islands in the like off the coast of Argentina. Yeah. That are basically nothing but sheep, sheep and seabirds, and the English and the Union Jack, and all of a sudden the the Argentinians are feeling their oats and say, oh yeah, these are the Malvinas, and of course what happens. <laughs> the Iron Lady steams a couple, you know, her... Well, uh, she, her, she her, tries to do, like, you know, um, through... Uh, negotiations. Negotiations. Through the UN. Yeah. And then she's and like... that fails. And it, yeah, she's like, okay, fine, F you. I'm, I'm, I'm parking a, my aircraft carrier off. Immediately, they, the British immediately destroy the Argentinian Air Force. And then... Right, but, but it wasn't like they stopped it. I mean, there was losses on both sides. Yeah. And, and people, like, they look back and, and if, depending on who you ask, people see that as a great British uh, strike... You know, for the empire, and other people say it was a waste of human life. You of know, and everything. It, was. it would, but it, but it secured her because it, right. because once again, that's people, what got her a second. People vote. got people felt that that surge of nationalism. Yes, that, yes. That this is and nationalism is a is as we all know is a very powerful and dangerous and thing in the so, wrong hands. But it's good that John brings that up because, as you can see, she's pro defense, meaning pro war. Right. She wants def- to defend Britain. So, and there's a lot of people in England doesn't, like, shouldn't be getting involved or trying to start any yeah. wars. So that's what getting back to, she like, stomps on the anti she, on the anti-war, anti-nuclear yeah. movement. She brings over the, the Persian cruise missiles, you know, that allow, that Reagan wanted so, yep. to push, to point at Russia. Yep. This woman is like, and she is, and yet, and, and as you said, the anomaly was that they couldn't attack her like they would in man. 
and you know because the, because the, the 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 sort of things that people would kind of say about you know about other you know they couldn't really use that that playbook right she had she had completely disarmed them and she was so intelligent and yeah, well spoken go you go watch some of her videos oh, like yeah. you'll see how well spoken she is she doesn't like you could attack her and she's going to give you compliments and put it back in your face like i said she's very intelligent yeah she's she a very intelligent person i, I gotta give her that um but the alan moore being very young seeing all this happening seeing things that you know he doesn't yeah. feel that he's, and then towards the end of her career she's trying to like get uh europe out Right. This is kind of instituting the pre-Brexit Brexit. Yeah, pre-Brexit Brexit, exactly. So, um, and you could see Alan Moore's taking all of this and, and saying, like, how much he has disdain for her yes. and disdain for these policies. And he puts it into his American comics. Or, or well, he put it into for V for Vendetta, which was an English comic. But we um, d- did the podcast on Superman uh, Annual 11, which yep. is the man, for the man who has everything. And he puts it in that, too. Yes. He, he wants to get it out there as much as possible. I have a question for you, because yes. one of the things that you were talking about as, as, uh, as possible influences, when did THX come out? The, the, the Lucas Oh, t- the 78? The 77? I wonder if this is like, you know, because there's, it seems like there's a zeitgeist for that sort of... Well, Alan Moore himself, it says, like, he has multiple uh, things that he cites for uh, influences. So books would be, of course, 1984 is right up there. Yeah. Brave New World is another one. Fahrenheit 451. So all these are kind of like yeah, really classic, classic totalitarian um, censorship kind of books. And then he cites like um, Vincent Pride horror movies, like yes. Dr. Phineas and um, Blood Theater, I think it was, something like that. And, and a whole bunch, and like even other English comics that existed. Judge Dredd, yeah. for example. Um, so he cites all of these things because it, it, we talked about this many times. In the 80s, we were all fearing for – there was this existential dread that we're all feeling right now with this the sickness. Yeah. There was this existential dread that existed because we always thought that when we woke up, we could be dead that day because nuclear annihilation could happen at any point. We had a little clock that told us how many minutes to midnight yeah, the, we the were. the doomsday clock. Right. And, we, and, and we would constantly be sending it forward because people were – because at this time in the 80s yeah. – um, the, Well, the, the mid-80s, right? Yeah. The, that the was rise, like the height. Yeah, the rise of the rise of tension between uh, the, fall of, the fall of the Soviet Union, the rise – the you know, at the end of it um, – Reagan tear down this wall. Yeah, well, that was like at late eighties, and it, it's so, but but I mean, when we were as teenagers growing yeah, up, we that's were, you know that's what we expected every single day. Yeah, but you have this now. Like this, this is I was thinking about that. It's like the what we experience now with existential dread. You get that right now today with this COVID nineteen. Yes, because it's not necessarily a deadly virus, but it's a virus that makes you sick, and you don't know who has it. It's just like communism too. You don't know who has it, but you could get it, <laughs> and you don't want it because bad things will happen. And so there's so many parallels that you can like. Oh, I, I feel that out of this, what we're doing right now, we're staying in place. A lot of great art is going to come out of it. A lot of great music, a lot of great books. I was also going to say, also in the '80s, we had uh, AIDS too. Well, yeah, and, and well, same thing though, because nobody thing. knows who has it. Yeah. Once, so there's a lot of influence that's going into this. Like you know, we're talking a lot here, but <laughs> it's great because you you want to know like some history about the comic before we start talking about the comic. All right. And um, so this is like really what inspires them. You could see like all this stuff, the things that we are talking about. This is what Alan Moore wants to talk about. And of course, when he meets um, David Lloyd, David Lloyd has like a, um, a foreword in the book. And he, he talks about yeah. how like the people who enjoy this comic are the people that enjoy the news. It's like it's, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a really... Um, Hold on one second. I got to get the... You're going to read the inscription yeah. there. Um. <laughs> oh, John. Um, so, yes. 
I, into, he starts off with a, a few nights ago, I walked into a pub on my way home and ordered a Guinness. I didn't look at my watch, but I knew it was before eight o'clock. It was Tuesday and I could hear the uh, television in the background. It was still running the latest episodes of EastEnders. <laughs> um, and he said, I finished my drink and left. Almost certainly that the TV would be silent for the rest of the evening for the nine o'clock news would have come. And the boys from Brazil, a, a, a film of few cheeky, a cheery characters in it which is all about the bunch of Nazis clearing, uh, cloning 94 clones of Adolf Hitler. There aren't many cheeky, cheery characters in V for Vendetta either. It's for people who don't switch off the news. Right. So <laughs> it, it isn't. It's, it isn't a cheeky, cheery kind of book. It's, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, soulless, not soulless, but it, it, it's very bad, desolate, um, existential dread. There aren't. Is a, like there's not a lot of high points in this there's book, not, and one but of it's things, a, still a great read. It's a it's a fantastic read, and I think part of the reason why I was so excited to talk about it is because one of the things that I realized was I think my younger self really considered V to be um, a hero, pretty much full stop. That opinion has changed, and I'm looking forward to discussing why. Okay. Oh well, yeah, and we'll probably have differences of like where when we first read it, when we didn't, when we read it again, do we feel the same way? Okay. We're getting into the comic now. Absolutely. Are you happy? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm talking to the listener. Are you happy? We're talking about no, but we we you got a lot of like a lot of great history. If you didn't know that, it gives you some stuff to read to look into. But let's talk about the actual story itself. So we're going to start with book one, which is called Europe After the Rain, and that's a play on words. It's a homonym for R E I G N instead of R A I N. Rule Britannia. Yes, exactly. So Europe after the rain. It's a play on words. Uh, that's Al Moore likes that stuff. And we're introduced to Evie. So the, the first kind of like few pages, um, this young girl, 16 years old. Again, I, this is like kind of my first problem with the reread of it. The, the youth of Evie, like how young she is in this book. Yes. And I understand that he probably put this for certain other character story arcs. That had to be involved, but I'm just like a too young. She's too young. So Evie is a young girl, and she's trying to sell herself. She prostitutes herself, and the reason why she's doing this is she works in a. She kind of like works in an orphanage, and she works in a factory, and she makes money, but it's not enough to cover her bills, and so she's gonna try to prostitute on the side. So again, happy times, happy book. No, not. So she her first John. Not, I'm not saying you John, but right. her first client. She gets up to, and she's she's stumbling and fumbling. She's like, I'm not very good at this. And he's like, yeah, you're very wor- you're even worse. And he shows her a badge. And the badge shows him that he's this character called, he's a finger man. And if you don't know what that means, so just think about um, the Nazis. Yes. And the Nazis had um, a special police called the secret police, a Gestapo. And they are were the ones that kept the peace when the, the soldiers were away. Yeah, the, the brown, the brown, the, 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 Actual brown shirts, right? The, the ones that came. So in. the fingermen are basically playing that role here. They're the Gestapo of England. They're not the they're not aren't military, but they're close to it, and yeah. they're enforcers on the street. But they do they do plain clothes. They're not like in uniforms or anything like that. And so you should flash the badge. I'm uh, with Norse Fire. I'm one of the fingermen, and you're gonna ex- understand why fingermen. And uh, so she's like, oh no, and then. She's like, you're not going to kill me. And then he, he kind of implies, like a, a friend comes over, another finger man, and, they even fly, and they're going to finger bang her. <laughs> yeah, that was a joke that I threw in there. And uh, he implies he's going, they're going to rape her and then kill her. So again, right. fun. 
not funny. I'm, I'm trying to make levity of this. This is really dark and depressing yes. material. Okay. So, but luckily, Evie is saved. What happens, John? So, and right from the from the from the shadows comes this fateful figure, and he and immediately comes in and then promptly dispatches them with knives. Yes, because guns are very you know have go pop pop make noises. Well, that too, but. There's also a stylistic thing involved with that, right? And, and um, V is 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 dressed in a very stylistic gear. He has yeah. a cloak that is around him. He wears the the Guy Fox mask and a very tall hat, like hat. a pilgrim hat. Exactly. I, I mean, I can't. I don't have the proper words to describe no, his no, attire. It is. It is uh, it's it's certainly a little bit off of uh, off Elizabethan. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely. And he's, he has high boots. You know. Yeah. It's it's a very theatric look, and he and he. And he he dispatches the fingerman and he grabs Evie and he takes her with him to back to his lair, yes. which is called the shadow cabinet. And um, she's like, oh, no, you know, what happened? And he's like, well, you know, I had to kill those people. There were cameras around. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we get back to I'm like jumping. I'm jumping. So before they get back to lair, he goes, I want he says, I saved you. I want you to come with me. I want to show you something. It's something's going to make you very happy. So they, they're up on a hill or somewhere high. And they're looking over the, the Thames, uh, which is the main river that f- goes through England. And on the Thames, you have very a lot of famous um, sites and places. Yes. Uh, including Big Ben and the Parliament. Yes. <laughs> and he wants to show Evie something. And John, what, what is it that he wants to show her? An explosion. An explosion. <laughs> they Fireworks. Up, they blow up the Old Bailey. No, no, no. They blow up the Parliament. Oh, that's right. Parliament first. The Parliament first. And, uh, and of course, and the other thing that happens, after, which, delights, which delights her, is that after they finish blowing up the Parliament, yep. um, Big Ben Parliament, um, is that they are at an actual fireworks display with V. V for, for victory. That's right. Uh, v for vendetta. And uh, uh, v yes, for, yes, V for whatever you want V. And he introduces himself as V, and uh, and then he takes her back to his lair, the shadow uh, cabinet, right? What is it called? Is this the shadow cabinet? I no. can't remember. See, even right now, even though we just read it, we're, we're having I our it's own. A shadow. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm saying shadow cabinet, yeah. but I'm I'm pretty sure that I, I think I'm wrong. Um, but but even right now, we're John's misremembering the parts. The, right, Bill, like, the old the old Billy does get destroyed, but that's later on in yes, in, the, in the story. So uh, he does this, and uh, is there anything so far like that you want to? Like I mentioned, the whole Evie being very young. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Evie being a little young, and and, and all of that. Um, I think one of the, the the thing about uh, V is that he's a he's a master of he's a master of the language and he's busy. Um, and one of the things that, that he does is he's often quoting lines from some of the great English, uh, authors, um, a lot of Shakespeare, some, um, and when you re- when he comes back, one of the things that the you, shadow gallery, the shadow gallery. Yes. And one of the things that, one of the things that you no- notice about the shadow gallery immediately is that it is a repository of all the things that were taken. And burned and destroyed, like and the well, you whole, you find out stuff like that. You as find the out comic there's goes. like a, there's a whole list of you know of these dangerous books, you know, um, that he's got he's got a um, 
one of the things that he delights Evie immediately is he has a, a, a jukebox. Jukebox. And she does, and music, because music has been pretty much eliminated. It's uh, the music that out that's out now is all military and martial, you know, kind of, you know, propaganda, you know, as a function of propaganda as opposed to, you know, an expression of joy and delight. Yeah. Um, so it's, you kind of, uh, you know, by, by watching her interact with these things, and of course, there's, there's great art on the wall. You can tell that V has this is not only is a is a conservator that there's that he is the repository of the of the memory a of curator the past. of the past. Yes, so that he's the um, he's sort of and he's and so he's the gatekeeper yeah. for Evie to try to bring in to bring her into this world. Now this is and upon my I think even my original reading and upon my rereading and this is uh, as we get more into the third book too. Uh, at the end of the second, going into the third, the whole uh, shadow gallery, I, I I kind of lose like uh, I'm kind of like oh how does he put this all together? It's like it's like the Bat Cave, so you know. There it's, are... it, I understand he's been doing this for years. It's but I, I this is where I start saying like I don't know if I can believe this. Okay, so one of the things that I think is really fascinating is that that when when V I'm going to skip forward just a little bit just to describe just to to answer your question on that because one of the things that I picked up this time that I missed was um he talks about the the the, the gallery being of three parts so basically it's id ego and super ego well the three he, parts it, and that, that this that, is that, that a big neural, they're revealed this yeah. is the neural network no but here's the thing it's a huge complex right that's what you're getting at right it is a huge complex he's one man now he's he's a man who's gifted with incredible physical attributes. He can he run and jump and do all yes. these things, but you're still one person, and you have to build all this. And we won't say where it is just yet because that's another big reveal that happens towards the end of the book. But he he has this huge space, and it's not inhabited by anybody. But he and he can bring things into it. But all right, a jukebox. Yeah. Look, you ever seen a jukebox? Yeah, those things are fucking heavy. They're heavy. You're not doing this by yourself. Yeah. And and it also it also begged the question about whether V was actually there's always been this part of me that re- that even reading it felt like at some point V had comrades that had fallen and he just never says it. And maybe he kills them. That that part of what he does is that he's part of that is that he's that he was that it's sort of a process where you have a master and a padwan. You know, yeah, it, it, and that's something that you learn as as thing goes on. Is that it, you have a feeling that Evie isn't the first person that had s- spent time in the night gallery. Yes, I like the night gallery yeah. because that's actually the. And I, I was just saying, wasn't that the the follow up to Twilight Zone was night gallery? I was thinking, I, yes, it was, and uh, I was also thinking of um, our friend uh, the um, what's it, um, the I'm exactly John. Thank you sorry, for bringing that. But up. anyway, so um, the, scratch, so the, scratch the, that. the next person that we're introduced to is going to be one of the the main antagonists of the story, and this would be uh, Mr. Adam Susan. Now, here's the interesting i interesting thing about Adam Susan is you get a little you get his internal monologue, and he describes his daily routine and why he does the thing he does, and through his monologue, you find out like you know he doesn't have any woman in his life or whatever whatever sexual orientation is but he, he, he's describing right. it as a woman and so i don't have the any woman in my life you i almost have a feeling he may not even have ever had sex that's what it kind of sounds like because he and he feels like before in the past before the war because you find out as we talk to evie is there was a war john mentioned it there was like a nuclear war a limit exchange there was anarchy 
There it was chaos, we should say. There's chaos on the streets. People, there were gangs roving the streets. There was no, um, no law. Right. Then all of a sudden, this group of people dressed in the same uniform came marching down the streets, took over town to town. They, this is the Norse Fire crew. And Norse Fire brought law back, but they also took freedom away. Right. And so people now live in a safer environment, but it's a surveillance state. You can't, you know, everything's under the thumb of the government. You can't breathe without them knowing it. Everybody has cameras in their house. So this is 1984. Right. You know, vibe. You can hear every conversation. You can see everything happening. There's no place where you can go where, you're, like, you know, even if you go to the bathroom, I'm sure there's cameras in there. Too. It was. It's sort of. It's sort of like what we've done. To, you know, it's sort of like what happened if you if you put um if you put everybody's Instagram up on twenty four seven. No, no. Yeah, well, twenty four seven. So yeah, people like liberally give their own freedoms and privacies away nowadays, but. Back in the day, they we, had to be taken. That like, stuff on, so on, it's very Stasi to like the next level. With Stasi, were the East German secret police. Yeah, and they were sort of the masters of this whole of the of the of these games. And a lot of the games that are being played in power are, in power are very you know very uh, uh, reminiscent of that period. Right. So the you, you learn the history about like through listening to his internal monologue about how did Norse fire come into power. Yes. And it totally makes sense. It, it was everything was in chaos. Um, control this new control and freedom comes through, but then your freedom gets taken away, and you're giving up all of your freedom in order to stay ultra secure. And you say, and you're willing to sacrifice the others. Yeah. And in this case, the others were people of color. The the you know the the homo, the LGBTQ. Well, that you find out that it's very homogeneously white um, yes. group in England, and you find out later why that happened. Uh, and we're going to get more into it as, as we talk about. It. But I wanted to bring that up about like how does how does totalitarianism, you know, tyranny happen? And it's it's never overnight. No. It doesn't just happen. It's a slow process. And what happens is you there's a uh, and you can even use modern day examples. Terrorism strike happens. Right. Um, okay, we'll give homeland uh, the, we're the ability. Homeland security. We're going to invent homeland security. We're giving them the, the right to monitor everything because they could monitor terrorists because the terrorists could strike at any point. Yep, the Patriot Act and name it the Patriot Act, and so, name that the Patriot you, Act. so that if you vote against it, you're not a patriot. You're, exactly. And, and you, you know, we're using modern day equivalents of it, but it, it's a scary thing because you, you, you learn that slowly, day by day, your uh, personal rights and freedoms are being taken away from you, but you don't realize that because you're, I'm more secure. Right. And we're not going to go, I don't want to go uh, off the deep no, end. No, I'm going to go too deep, yeah, because we can talk, we do, do three hours of podcast but, talking about this stuff. But the whole but point. this is, what you're seeing is like, oh yeah, I could, uh, you say these stuff, it's like, I, I would never have Hitler. But then the next thing, if you, if you have a president and he starts saying like, I like taking rights away, but it makes you more secure, and you can you you can have a job the whole time. You're just gonna be working for minimum pay, and you can't complain about it. But you're gonna have a job and a place to stay, and it might not be a great place, but it's a place to stay. You are in a battered relationship with your president, <laughs> and you, but you don't care because you can't get out of it. Oh, how much would you sacrifice to go back to work? To start to reopen the economy. That, right, exactly. Could I get my job back? Well, if the job, if the, if the president says it's okay to go back to work, so again, there's a lot of parallels that there's we can. Just, we can that's is, the reason why we're doing it right now. Right. Because I'm like, I, I I put it in a post on Twitter. It's like I'm watching an an alt um, history uh, show called The Plot Against America. Right. And it's about um, Lin, uh, Charles Lindbergh gets elected president. 
He's an anti-Semite. And he he says, I'm not going to get involved in Hitler. I'm not going to get into the war. I'm going to save people's lives. Right. I got it worked out with Hitler that we're not going to get into war. But you find out there's something else going on. And then we go from a, um, a state where everybody's free. And then some people aren't so free. And then, then now some people have to be put away because certain rules. And, and there's a slow slide into, right. uh, you know, despotism. I think that I'm, I'm there. It was actually, uh, it was, it was actually, Chur- I believe it was actually Churchill who said that the, um, I'm going to paraphrase it with the slide to the, the slide to, to, to tyranny is through, is through safety. Right. You know, it's a, it's a, it's well, a, I think it was also uh, Ben Franklin that said that uh, anybody you, who gives up a little bit of freedom for a little bit of security deserves neither. neither. Yeah. yeah and I, loses both. Yeah. I think that's, that's sort of, you know, that may be, may or may not be because I think there's a couple different sources for that. But yeah. yeah. That's commonly attributed to, to Franklin. I think it's, um, and I think that what, I think what it speaks to is um, if you look at um, the hierarchy of needs, you know, in terms of like one of the things that we need, we need that we have, and also things that we didn't understand until recently was that one of the things that we that we desperately needed was order and secure. It was was that we could handle a certain degree of random arbitrary um, disruption. Yeah. If it was a single day or a single event. Yeah. As these things are as these things as things progress over time, more people will question even will go against what they know is ultimately in their best interest for their immediate needs. And one of the things that that that, that uh, V is V is very eloquent about is reminding people of the scale of what they are what they've lost. Yeah. In some ways, when you are born into this, somebody like Evie doesn't understand because she has no historical. Pro- she has she doesn't have all the historical press. Right. Precedent she, she's this. very young when all this happens. Right. So so for her, so this, she's only known as Norse Fire. Right. And in some ways, people people who do, like even now, you can tell that there's a you know there's a there's a cultural divide for the people who grew like in our generation, you know, who grew up with the you know the existential threat, threat of AIDS when it first came out. And how we, you know, transmission. We, nobody knew how it was transmitted, and there was a lot of misinformation, and there were competing experts talking about whether, you know, whether what was safe in behavior and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the, the because you had to worry about the three H's when you first came when it came out. Hemo, heal, if you, he, you know, hemophilia. Easy for you to say. Hemo, hemophiliacs, Haitians, and hem, and homosexuals. And hemorrhoids. Exactly, I remember that. Because that was because those were the three groups that were first identified. Yes. As it turned out, that everybody could be a carrier. It, it was because it was. And it was yeah, the, the, it was very limited because it was very. No, everybody was um, ignorant. Because, because what they got was. So sorry. What they got was they got um, they they got the official data, the the initial data, and they didn't know how to process it because right, they right. didn't have scale. Well, we're, we're getting too far off. Sorry. There. So um, going back. To Mr. Susan, and, and we're probably going to be ending on this part. So, Mr. Susan, um, he, he he's in control of uh, England. He's in control of the UK, I should say. He's in control of the UK, and he says, like, you know, people fear me, and um, people respect me, but that's out of fear. Right. And um, people love me, but that's out of fear t- as well. But I can't get true love. I've never known true love, and I'm paraphrasing, right. of course. And so, but the only thing he knows is he has this computer system. It's called Fate, and Fate controls everything. It sees everything. It hears everything, and he knows all. And because of that, he feels love for the machine, right? Um, and because the machine gives him everything that he wants, and you find out that England is is has um, different body parts labeled for different groups, right? So Mr. Susan is the head. 
Because he's he's with the fate computer, so he's the, the central the processing unit, the brain. So it's known as the head. Then you have um, the kind of like the media center, which is like the mouth. Yep. And then you have the surveillance state, which are the eyes and the ears. And then you have the actual. Then you have the actual apparatus of the state, which is the hand. The hand, which is the the, the secret police, and the and that's why you get fingermen. And um, but you and you also have um, the real police, the Scotland Yard, and everything like that. And that is known as the nose. Yes. Yeah, because they, they, they smell sm- what's t- t- take down leads. So if somebody gets murdered, they try to figure it out, right? So there's a real police, and then there's the, the, the secret police, the Gestapo. Um, but everybody knows, you know, about the it's not no secret. Yes. Don't get stay away from these guys. And and then that's how it is. So it's much like um, Nazi during the World War II. It's it's a very similar state. Everything goes back to Hitler, and every and the, all kind of like the everything's lost. But it's in combining um, 1984's surveillance state, the, yes. the technology to monitor everybody. So, Evie talks to. So we know about Mr. Susan, and you get a little bit of background on like why he does it, and, and you almost kind of feel some sympathy to him. But then you're like, oh, he's a big jerk because he's like you know secretly surveilling everybody. And then uh, we go back to, to, to Evie and V, and Evie explains, as you just mentioned. Um, that she grew up before the war. She was very young. She had a mother and father, and the war happens. The mother gets very sick. We I forget why. Not radiation poisonous per se, but she gets very sick, and she dies, and she doesn't get to see her mother when she dies because the father doesn't want her to see her because she looks just very bad. And um, then Norse Fire comes in. Norse Fire starts rounding people up. Uh, her father was a socialist, Yes, he had socialist point. ideals as a communist will label, and he gets rounded up and taken away. And so, what you find out through Evie is people that didn't agree with Norse Fire or were not the same complexity, the skin complexion, shall we say? Yes, of the Norse Fire group, which is white people, um, they got rounded up and they got put into resettlement, quote unquote, resettlement camps. That's right. Uh, ah yes, and uh, nobody, everybody knows that if you, if a government sends you to camp, it's never going to be good. <laughs> it's government. Camps. It's no, it's no summer fun sports there. Um, but and so we're going to get into that. So we're going to end it here because we talked a lot. So and then we're only just in the book one. Yeah, and 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 thank you for staying with us. I mean, I apologize. You know, I'm not going to apologize, but I I, think I had a, we had a great time talking about a bunch that, of different things. I think one of the things that really is useful right now. About and the reason why I was looking forward to doing this when Jim suggested it, um, I know we've kind of you're you're right. We did kind of put this out off a little bit. Yeah, but right now it I seemed th- it seemed the appropriate time. I think it's yeah exactly. And I think if you've been watching, like for example, this this season of um, Westworld, there's a there seems to be a little bit of linkage between uh, Fate and uh, the computer that was ro- was controlling yeah, it, everybody's it, it's, it's a it's a um lives. a trope or you know something yes. something that exists in other media. And it's interesting to think about that Alan Moore had already seen that the the machination of totalitarianism. Well, the, and, but it's, it's it existed. It's like right. it existed in real. That's what I'm saying. Is it existed in real life? And he took that and he just applied a store a narrative to it. Right. And he said, "This is the ultimate extent of what's going to happen with this." Right. And he, but he was uh, but like much like Gibson, you know, picking you know getting getting taking a look at seeing what was going on and applying it to the, and creating the net. Yeah. You know, his his vision of what cyber you know yeah. what the cyber frontier would look yeah. like. In some ways, Alan Moore was doing the same thing in terms of the, you know, the, in terms of the scale that you could now use technology and surveillance to control people's lives. 
So we're going to end the podcast at this point. Um, who knows? We might even make this a three-parter at this point, uh, the way we keep talking. But we're going to try to make it in two. So we're going to talk more about the comic, books two and three. Um, so, so if you haven't read V for Vendetta, go out and read it now because we barely touched the surface. Actually, of you it. know what? This would, you know, what would be fun. This could be a good read along. Yeah, read along. So, hey, go to Amazon. They still deliver books. Go, go wherever you can get a book. Right. Wherever they get a book, download it. Get the digital copy. However you can get your hands on it, read it because you got plenty of time to read it now. And then come back to week two. And we're going to continue the discussion about the comic, and then we're going to talk about the movie, or try to talk about the movie. If not, that'll be the third part. Yes, absolutely. All right. So thanks for sticking with us, and um, we will see you in seven. Again, if you want to listen to this podcast and all of our other podcasts, especially those other Alan Moore podcasts, Worth it, every you know listen. what you should do? Go to, um, go to Google, type in Comics Misremembered, space Alan Moore, hit enter, and see how many things pop up. Because we, we did a lot of podcasts re- regarding true. Alan Moore work. Uh, we don't do it every day. We just kind of space them out. But we did. We have talked about him in the past. And, and, and if you want to hear our Superman one, in fact, I'll cl- do a link in this podcast. But search for Superman Annual Eleven. That's why I call it not the man who has for the man who has everything. And uh, so go to Comics Misremembered. Get all the podcasts. You can listen to them. You got time on your hands now. And stay safe. Stay indoors. Um, and listen to Comics Misremembered, and and it will be a it'll be a great thing because now you now when you read it you have all of our thoughts bouncing around and you can add your own exactly and then you can you know leave comments leave notes because we have Twitter we have Facebook we have all the the social media that you can that shake a stick at so thank you for listening to us and we will see you in seven. <laughs>